morning. I'm Jim Murphy from Grow Forward here in our offices in downtown Chicago. We're going to do another exciting interview discussion with Ellen Needham Hoover, who lives here in Chicago. Ellen is, uh, has got a great story to tell, and we're really looking forward to, to having this conversation. Glad to be here. Thank you, Jim. Right. So you, you have an interesting story. I think our viewers will find uh, uh, very different. Yeah. Than, than the average person that they might meet in the streets of Chicago. Um, let's start with the, uh, the first days. What do, what do you remember uh, growing up? Where were you at? And what was your town like that you lived in? So I was born in uh, Accra, Ghana, which is Ghana's country in West Africa. And I grew up with my extended family. So I grew up with uh, my parents, uh, my grandmother, grandfather, uh, my aunts and uncles, uh, my cousins. Um, so. Uh, I grew up with everyone. <laughs> it was like 30 people in our house. And it was a loving household. Um, had lots of fun, lots of freedom to run around. Um, and unfortunately, around five, my father passed away in a car accident. And so at that point, my uncle, who was living in the US at the time in Chicago, and his wife decided to adopt me and bring me to the US. And so um, it was an interesting period. Um, it. Um, you know, in, in Ghana, America is like, you know, the promised land, a land of milk and honey. So everyone is like, it's like winning the lottery, I guess it's the equivalent. And so for me, I was thrilled as a kid, you know, I saw the cartoons, I just thought, oh my goodness, this is gonna be a wonderful experience. Uh, and I was looking very for, uh, much forward to it. Um, and uh, so that happened when I was about seven, seven and a half, when I finally came over to Chicago. And how big was the town that you grew up in? Well, Accra is, is actually the capital of Ghana, oh, it so it's uh, a couple of million people, uh, and the, so it's it's a city. Um, and but my neighborhood was my world, pretty much as a you know five six year old, you know. So uh, that was relatively small, and uh, it was it was a good time. <laughs> um, we didn't have a lot, but it was a good time. Was that your first uh, airplane trip to come over here? Of course, yes, and I flew by myself actually. Uh, and remember being terrified but excited. As a kid, I think you can experience a lot of things and not really understand the depth of it, like not knowing the plane is gonna crash or not knowing, you know, something could happen to me. I just was excited about the adventure of being on a plane and going to another country. And so it was, it was wonderful. Were there, you had to switch planes in certain airports? I did, so I took KLM and so I had to switch in uh, Zurich. Um, and I remember being in this like playground area for kids who were traveling by themselves. And it's so strange that I actually remember this very clearly, like it just happened, this was, you know, 1991, but I remember it very clearly and meeting kids from all over the world. Um, and yeah, it was eating food on the plane. It was just, it was neat, I loved it. <laughs> so then your, your new parents, your aunt mm -hmm. and uncle, were now greeted you at the airport at O'Hare. Mm -hmm. And uh, what was their journey like over? How long had they been here prior to your coming over? So my, my uncle, my father, my adoptive father, um, had been here since the late 70s. My mom is American, she, she was born and raised in Chicago, um, so she'd been here all her life. Uh, and then my, um, they had a son, so I have a, a new brother. Um, so I just remember me, them meeting me at the airport. Uh, I remember being like, wow, this is such a huge transition. <laughs> I was living in a house with like 30 people and now it's just me, my new dad, my mom, and my brother. <clears throat> you know, an, an apartment at the time. So it was like, wow, this is a, uh, a much different setup than I'd been used to. But again, I was still very excited, you know, about the new, new adventure. 
So before I chronologically make the next step, why don't you tell us about your current situation and your family life now? So I, um, I was out east for school, came back to Chicago a couple of years ago. So I'm back in Chicago, married. I have a two-year-old, expecting another one on the way. Are you really? <laughs> <laughs> um, I live in Bronzeville. Um, so yeah, just, you know, uh, it's, it's funny. I grew up here as a kid and experienced Chicago as a child. So I'm now experiencing it as an adult, and it's, it's a lot of fun. And uh, it's nice to have our family here. My parents still live in the city. My husband's family still lives in, he's a native Chicagoan. Um, and so it's, it's, it's great to have family all around us as well, 20, 30 minutes either way, so. Babysitters. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely, definitely. So let's go back. So now you're, uh, you're a kid here in Chicago and you're gonna try to figure out what the school system is like. Mm -hmm. Your English was good, very good? Or My English was okay. was okay. I remember, um, so I was, seven and a half when I came. I came in August. School year started in late August, actually. I think a couple of weeks after I arrived. Mm -hmm. And so I remember there was a conversation about what grade I should go in. They were like, well, you know, it's probably better for her to go into sec uh, second grade instead of third grade because I was going to turn eight in October. Um, just to give her time to catch up. It's a new environment. Um, you know, her English isn't I had potential, but it, my English wasn't great. So I was placed in the lowest reading group. Uh, and I remember struggling with that, but I was really good at math. And I remember clearly doing very well on the math test, getting like 90 something percent. Um, not, not really quite sure why. Um, and don't remember doing a lot of math before coming here. It wasn't like I was being tutored in math, but it just seemed, um, just seemed very natural to me. Right. Uh, and I remember thinking, wow, okay, this is something that I'm good at. I'm going to run with math. And then at some point over the years, I got moved up in the reading group and graduated as the valedictorian of that eighth grade class. And what school was that? St. Thomas of Canterbury. Oh, that's right. Mm -hmm. So from there, what, what happened in your life then? After high school? No, before high after grammar uh, school. After grammar school. So I got the Daniel Murphy Scholarship Fund uh, in eighth grade. And I actually remember interviewing for that scholarship program and um, being very nervous. Um, I had, I think, three separate interviews. And my mother did as well. So they interviewed me and then my mom. And feeling like I had to go in there and fight and be ready to explain to them why I deserve this and, uh, and being very uh, adamant about, you know, all, you know like this, this is for me, uh, this is all the things I've done before, this is why you should give it to me. And uh, my mom coming afterwards um, and they're like, oh, your daughter's a powerhouse, you know. Uh, she's like, I know. <laughs> um, but that was such a wonderful experience. I remember um, doing a program right before I started high school through the Murphy Scholarship uh, that was really helpful. Uh, I just remember the camaraderie, the, just the, the community that I found. Um, and it was nice to have before going into high school. Um, and I didn't know anyone in high school. So it was nice to know, hey, there's a Murphy Scholar a year ahead of me or two years ahead of me. Um, and we had events as well on the weekends. The, the mentoring program was wonderful. Uh, my mentor, who has now passed away, um, became close friends with my parents. I mean, she hung out with them even after I went to college, you know. So she really became part of our family. So, so where'd you go to high school? St. Ignatius. Oh, mm -hmm. that's a good school. You had a good experience there? I had a wonderful experience. I loved it. Um, you know, Ignatius, um, just world-class education. Um, you know, teachers that really cared. Uh, beautiful school. I mean, it was like going to Hogwarts. It was just magical place. And uh, I remember that was really the first time my parents started letting me take public transportation by myself because I, I grew up in Rogers Park, but Ignatius was on 
what we called, I think it was just called the South Side then, but it's now the South Loop. <laughs> and so, and the neighborhood was transitioning, uh, but my parents were like, it's time for you to be, you know, on your own now. I was like, this is when you're gonna let me take the bus? <laughs> so I remember getting up at 5.30 in the morning, taking a bus, a train, and then another bus just to get to school every morning. Uh, and being, you know, I, I was excited about it, so I don't remember it really being a, a struggle or, you know, complaining, especially during the winter times when it would be dark at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. But it was, you know, I was looking forward to going to St. Ignatius. So, um, it, I, you know, my mother was like, are you sure you don't want to go to St. Alaska's right down the street? I was like, no. <laughs> so now recapping, you, you uh, got on a plane when you were seven and a half mm -hmm. years old, flew from Ghana to Chicago. Mm -hmm got off the plane, went to St. Thomas, and then, and then you went to St. Ignatius and, and graduated there in four years, I assume? In St. Ignatius, yes, yes, yes and, of course. And then what, what, what was the next step? So I got into Harvard. Uh, After St. Ignatius, you went to Harvard? Yes, okay. yes. Um, was there for four years, wonderful experience as well. Uh, really just um, felt really privileged and really grateful, I guess is probably a better word, to, to have had that experience. I mean, it was like every day someone new was coming on campus and it was like, oh, either do I see Kofi Annan or, you know, Bill Clinton or something, you know, it was just all these dignitaries coming to campus to speak, having events. Uh, it, was, it was just a world, you know, completely beyond what I even expected. Uh, it was wonderful. I have some of my closest friends from, from college. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. Was there another education step immediately? Was there something between the next step? Uh, so I decided to kind of pause a little bit. I was struggling to determine what my next steps were going to be. I uh, had always wanted to be an attorney, um, but um, I, wasn't, I, w I was also interested in entertainment, uh, in making films, uh, you know. Uh, so I was thinking about film school. So what ended up happening was I worked for a small uh, film company on a documentary. Uh, about infant mortality rates among um, high-achieving African-American women, which was a really interesting topic. Um, and it kind of gave me uh, an opportunity to see behind the scenes, like how do you put together a documentary, the editing process, interviewing process, the research process. Um, and it was an interesting experience, but I was like, yeah, I don't know if I could do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> it, was, it, was, uh, it was hard, you know, you, know, you um, you just never know when the next uh, project is going to come down the pipeline. Right. And funding is always an issue. Um, and I said, well, maybe I should go to law school just in case. <laughs> so then eventually you did go back to school, though. I did. Yeah. I did. Um, and I think the plan was always to go back to law school, but I just needed some time to figure some things out. So I went back. Um, I, so I started at UVA. Um, graduated three years later. And law school was difficult. Law school was very different from all my other educational experiences. I mean, because um, the idea of law school is to train you like a lawyer. So they really weren't concerned about what your thoughts were about anything. <laughs> I mean, they were, but it, you know, they were trying to mold you into thinking in a certain type of way that uh, I found really difficult and unnatural for me uh, when all my previous educational experiences had encouraged me to think outside of the box and be Right. very creative in my thinking and law school was not like that. <laughs> so, um, but you know, it was an important experience. Um, I, I learned a lot. Uh, smartest people I've ever been around. Yeah, it's school. a hard school to get into. That's one of the, what, top two or three in the country law schools? Top 10. Top yeah, 10. top 10. Uh, uh, and Charlottesville is beautiful. Yeah. Uh, it was really just a quiet place to sit and learn. And um, it's a really young law school. Um, so a lot of people 
either went straight through or maybe just a year off. So people were really like laid back compared to other law schools, but but it was still law school. <laughs> so let's recap now. We got mm -hmm. Ghana, then we mm -hmm. got Rogers Park, then right. we got St. Ignatius, <laughs> right. Harvard, uh -huh. UVA. That's right. That's a pretty good progression. That's, yep. that's, a little, that's, <laughs> a, that's the kind of march you want to be marching on, right? Yeah. So you get done with law school, and then uh, what did you decide to do? Well, so I came out of law school during the recession, right. which was a very difficult time for everyone. I mean, no one was getting any sort of right. uh, interviews, jobs, anything. Um, so what happened was I summered in the summer of 09, and they came back. My, the, the firm at the time was told me basically, why not take a year? And they did this to everyone in my class. And do whatever you want, volunteer. We'll pay you half your salary. Um, and then in about a year, you guys can start. So I was like, okay, that sounds like a good deal. I mean, at least I still have a job lined right. up in a year or two. A lot of my classmates don't. So I think I'll pursue this. So I work for a nonprofit, the Grameen Foundation. They do micro lending in developing countries. And I actually got a chance to go back to Ghana for a couple of months because um, they have an office there. Had so you often gone back? Not often. Uh, I went back when I was 11. Um, then I went back in college, and then I think the Grameen Foundation opportunity was the third time that I'd gone back. Um, so I, I was there for a couple months because of that, and then um, came back, started the firm finally. Four months later, they filed for bankruptcy. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, this was the recession. Right. You know, this was happening all around, and so this was. And the firm was in New York, so I moved from New York, came to Chicago. Um, and at the time, I was seeing someone, my now husband, and so I knew Chicago would eventually be where I would end up. Both of our families are here. He wanted to stay in Chicago. And so I, I decided to look for something here, found, some, found uh, an opportunity at a firm, was there for a few years, and uh, yeah. So now you've had the experience of being at a couple firms in Chicago, but you're probably going to, you're doing your own thing now. What, 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 do you, what do you see that, what do you see that transition being? Yeah, so... You know, someone once told me to determine, find a true passion, you have to look back at the things that you've done uh, and the things that you've enjoyed doing. So, so I'm going to take a step back in answering that question. So as far back as I can remember, and I think it's part of my experience coming here as an immigrant, trying to integrate, you know, to American society, um, even though I spoke English not as well, learning how to speak English, um, just trying to figure out who I was, right? Um, I've always been interested in issues of inclusion and difference because I knew I was different. I spoke differently. I had a different background. You know, I had two moms, <laughs> biological mom. So I, I was keenly aware of difference from a very young age. And so um, I remember being involved in like um, just intercultural programming and um, uh, student groups in high school. Um, I was president of the Black Student Association High School at Harvard. I was um, an intern for the Harvard Foundation for Intercultural Relations that brought together different student groups and had events um, around campus and sort of encouraged intercultural dialogue. Um, I was president of Black Law Students Association in um, law school. So I looked back at all these things and I said, you know, I've always been interested in issues of inclusion. You know, um, and then even looking at my professional experience and seeing um, the importance of inclusion there. Um, in a law firm, for example, um, this may be true for other um, industries, uh, mentorship and um, just getting opportunities is essential to being successful. And what I mean by that is you need billable hours to be successful at a law firm. And in order to get those billable hours, you get 
um, you need partners to give you work. And partners give work to people that they trust or they like. And so a lot of that can be very subjective, right? Um, you know, I like Bob because, you know, Bob and I can talk about sports, for example, and I feel comfortable around Bob. I have to spend hours with Bob. I'm going to give my work to Bob, right? Because at, at the end of the day, most of us come from these great law schools. N no one knows anything when they start. <laughs> so we're all, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, open books. Um, and so, but what I think what happens is um, there starts being a distinction between people who are getting certain work and people who are not getting certain work. And I noticed a lot of that was around um, difference, racial gender lines, maybe. Um, and so that, sort of, that started to inform my next steps. Okay, I've noticed you know, there's issues with inclusion within the legal space. And this is not something that I just experienced. I mean, um, this is written about, researched about, yes, the legal community has um, um, difficulties with inclusion, diversity and inclusion. And so I thought, well, maybe that's, this is something that I can go into, this is something I can um, you know, use my own personal experiences um, to inform my next steps. I want to just go back and recap Ghana, Ignatius, mm -hmm. Harvard, UVA. Mm -hmm. Law degree, a couple big firms. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people would consider that a pretty successful trajectory mm -hmm. for a first-generation immigrant from anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, wouldn't you say that it was also, and, and did you not do it without a diversity counselor? I think, I think I've been given so many opportunities, and I think, um, you know, um, I, I'm ve I've been very grateful for those opportunities. So growing up, all you have to do is work hard. You will end up having this life that is just as good as anyone, because this is a country of opportunity, and I believe that. But research shows that college educated, among college educated folks, college educated white Americans has three times the wealth of college educated black Americans. That blows my mind. If you're telling me that all I need to do is to get a college degree, that's my, the credentials or whatever credentials, law degree, business degree, right? And the playing field is, is leveled. That shouldn't happen, or at least not to that degree, right? And what's happening is the, is inherit inheritance basically, right? People are getting transfers of wealth that are not possible in certain communities. So for me, when I think about that, I'm like, well, gosh, so you're telling me go to school and get a degree, you're gonna do well, but just not as well because you come from a disadvantaged community. And that to me is incredible. I mean, I'm not saying this is what I'm gonna tell my two-year-old. <laughs> like, you're gonna do well, but you may not do as well because guess what? Your grandparents don't have any inheritance to leave you, and we may not. <laughs> either <laughs> so well, which 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 could be I could I could see you saying oh well that's just your individual situation but when when the research su suggests that wait no actually there's a huge wealth gap and education doesn't completely decrease that my, my, it helps my position would simply be there's nothing's fair oh no there's no balance in anything okay I agree with you, that it's opportunity and you take the best opportunity to make the best of your situation I agree okay? with that and that, and that in the second generation of family should have more opportunities if, if the first generation took advantage of it. And then the third generation it may be, be even better if they have a nice family mm -hmm. unit and, and their people are leading them, giving them direction, okay? And their parents are telling them, you know, this is the next step. This may work out for you if you go this mm -hmm. way, it may not. I mean, I've had children that have gone the opposite direction of what I suggested doing. So mm -hmm. that doesn't mean just because you suggest something that's mm -hmm. gonna happen. But clearly it should be statistically an advantage to be second generation. 
Oh, no, Jim, I totally agree. What I'm saying is we can't discount race, right? Or, you know, any other sort of difference, right? Um, and that's kind of my point. My life is certainly financially better off than my parents, of course. I earn more than my parents. Um, I, my house is a nicer house than my parents' house. It's just not where I thought I would be given what the narrative was that was explained to me, right? And that's not, I mean, you're not, you can't say just because uh, you put an A, you're gonna get B. Life doesn't work that way, right? There's right. all sorts of variables. And one of those variables, and I mean, this has been well-researched, I'm not the first one to say it, is racial difference or, or you know ethnic difference or whatever. Well, you're the and first one to say it on my my little broadcast. Oh. <laughs> so that's that's an important thing here. We're having this wonderful conversation about. And that's the first step is yeah. the conversation. Yeah. I think oftentimes people want to shy away about talking about race, and it's you know and I think about people when you experience things that are traumatic. You know, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm going to pretend like I am one for a second. You have to talk about it, right? You have to you have to bring it to the forefront. Otherwise, it's always going to be there. And I, and I think, you know, in our, with our country, I mean, we've, you know, there's lots of protests, there's a lot, a lot going on, but no one's really having this, these conversations about difference and in inclusion, right? Um, right? You know, you, what the, you know, what, what research or thinking suggests is, okay, you go to these schools, you should be able to live anywhere you want. Okay, I live in a predominantly black neighborhood, and there's nothing wrong with that. But to me, that is strange because you would have thought all these opportunities would have afforded me the opportunity to have access. Greater, and it has to a certain extent, but not as great, I think, as my colleague and some of my friends. Um, again, I think research bears this out, but that's just been my personal experience. It's not to say that I don't believe in opportunity or hard work. Right. I believe in working extremely hard. Right. In fact, had I known this, I would have worked harder. <laughs> to be honest, I would have because um, I would have seen fully sort of the obstacles and the barriers that are you'll before you, me, but I didn't, I didn't know this as a kid. You just said that when they're of age. Oh, yeah. So we have uh, racial discrimination, but we also have uh, the, this gender diversity mm -hmm. that you talked about. Some of our viewers will be able to put a time on this interview based on the, my next question, because it was just yesterday the day before the state of California passed a law that said that every board has to have a woman on the board of directors. Uh, for privately and publicly traded companies. Uh, my question to you is, do you think a law like this improves uh, gender equality, or does it, um, is, it, is, it, is, it a, is it a positive or is it a negative? And um, uh, do you see it helping, or do you see a, a, a possible backlash by having a law needed in order to do this, which is probably already happening in California? You have to think it's... It's probably already pretty widespread. Uh, do they need a law? Uh, I think I think a law can help. Um, I I think first of all, businesses have what we call the business case for diversity, right? As this country grows increasingly more diverse, um, businesses have to be able to respond to that, right? Their, their markets are changing. Um, what 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 does the market look like? Right? For example, Walmart. Who who are the consumers? That's changed over the years, right? Especially with increased immigration, um, and so it's important to be responsible responsive for that. That's smart business. Mm -hmm. That's just, smart business. You're just citing a smart business case for exactly. having a diverse board, right? Okay, because that diverse board will bring talents and experiences and and things that other people that if you had an all white male board mm -hmm. wouldn't have. Okay, mm -hmm. that's business. Mm -hmm. Do you need a law to do it? Well, I, I think you do. Um, when I, I think back on board, Brown versus Board of Education, 
many people said the country wasn't ready for integrated schools, right? And so, and a lot of people talk about this, well, maybe it was important for the Supreme Court to make that decision to get the country ready. So maybe the Supreme Court was a little bit ahead of the country. Um, I think in, in certain cases it does help. It does help to push people forward, um, uh, put a little bit of fire under them um, that they wouldn't otherwise, you know, to make decisions they wouldn't otherwise make. Um, so yeah, I think sometimes that uh, does work, but ultimately I think as a country we have to come to the decision that this is something that's important for us. You know, we have all these ideals as a shining nation on a hill, and yet they're, you know, we're not completely living up to that, and that should concern all of us. Companies discriminate at that level end up probably mm -hmm. not being that smart, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay? And, and I, I just... Uh, well, often, yeah, oftentimes people talk about the business case of diversity. Within right. the legal industry, we say, well, um, companies are looking for outside counsel law firms that are diverse because they themselves are diverse, you know, their clients are diverse. And so, um, you know, there's different programs like requiring a certain percentage of people of color or minorities working on certain uh, cases. For example, Facebook requires uh, a certain percentage of the people working on their matters to be people of color or women. Um, so, um, so, so that's for law firms, that's their business case. We're, we're not, if we want Facebook's business, we need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so for them, it makes real good business sense. But I think it's also important to look beyond that. There's this additional element of, you know, who are we? And, and I understand the country's segregated people socialize around, you know, racial lines. And I mean, I know people have said outside of work, they may never see a person of color, depending on where they live and who is in their family. And I think that's problematic. Um, I think, um, you know, why live in such a diverse country, but not really experience it, not really have true inclusion. But people could freely choose not to. It could be religious could. grounds. It could they, be. I mean, it could be all kinds of different grounds. They, they could, they, and they, they do. Cub fans I, don't like talking to Sox fans. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's really yeah. uh, people can choose to do that freely in a mm -hmm. free society. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, if we if we restrict it, what if we should we have a law that every religion should be represented on a, a company board? Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I don't mm -hmm. think it makes good policy, mm -hmm. but. Diversity, both gender and racial, is coming. The evolution is happening. It's, mm -hmm. it's almost revolutionary, but it's happening. Diversity and is happening. Inclusion happening. is a bit more of a struggle, I think. It's having everyone being, and I understand, I mean, that's years off maybe, right? Um, there's a lot of reasons why things are, I mean, there's housing segregation. You can explain why the city looks We still the way have public school segregation here in Chicago. Yeah. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. We still have it. I mean, you have schools that are just 99% African American. Yes. You got schools that are mostly white, not yeah. 99, but you got schools that are probably 75. And uh, and yet we've had Supreme Court decisions that said we shouldn't do it that way. Mm -hmm. Right? It, what is that all about? Yeah. I mean, we, we, we can't we can't even fix the school system. Mm -hmm. Well, no, that's that's what I'm saying. That's that's it's difficult. Like these are not easy solutions, right? This is not something that happened overnight it took centuries for us to get to this point right and it's going to take some more time for us to move beyond it but it's not to say that we don't address it or we don't tackle it that we don't engage it and you know it might take even after engaging it might take still some centuries i don't know not but, centuries well hopefully not. well <laughs> not the, the gap is the, the the gap in wealth they said it might take 200 years for that to close and this is among college educated folks which i think is crazy right um that's you know I, beyond my lifetime, obviously. So, um, but uh, again, it's not to say that we don't engage it or we don't 
think it's important or it's not worth talking about. I think that's the important part. Well, that'd be an exciting project. You have your own firm, do, do that kind of advisory work. I, I think it probably is a field that you can go beyond law firms. Oh, yes, you know, definitely. You don't have to be doing Law firms struggle a lot with it. Um, right. And I think it's because of the way uh, the billable hours uh, situation is structured. But other companies are talking a lot about it, especially in the tech industry. Uh, Facebook has done a lot with it, for example. So, yeah, I know it's, uh, you know, schools are talking about it now, uh, doing more with that, universities. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I know it's, you can go beyond just law firms. If you're successful, you put yourself out of business. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. No, that's the goal, right? Like, that I don't need to do this because right. people get it and people want to talk about it and right. people are not rolling their eyes when I talk about it. So, yeah. You know, I think we could end with that. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, Jim. Okay, Thank great. You.